What's good, everybody? My name is Dr. Bettina Love. And my name is Chelsea Cully Love. And you are listening to Teaching to Thrive. Teaching to Thrive is a podcast committed to sharing ideas that strengthen the everyday lives of Black and Brown students within our schools and communities. Each episode is aimed at empowering our shared knowledge for collective liberation. Teaching to Thrive is brought to you by Abolitionist Teaching Network. You can follow us at abolitionistteachingnetwork.org. All right. Episode two of Teaching to Thrive. We're going to do a little different today. So my co-host, my beautiful co-host, my wife, Chelsea Cully Love, I'm actually going to interview her today because Chelsea is not only co-host of Teaching to Thrive, she's an amazing, amazing educator. And so I thought as we think about going back to school and she is teaching third grade this year uh, virtually that we will talk to her about how she's going to approach teaching virtually, how she's going to build community, how she's going to think about relationship with parents, how she's going to bring in race and identity in this virtual space. So when we were thinking about what the next podcast would be, we wanted to be very intentional about the time that we're in right now. And so I'm going to interview Chelsea. She's going to tell us how she's going to set her classroom up, how she's going to do all the things she's been talking about. So what up, Chelsea? Hey, what's up, Dr. Love? So I know you as an amazing, wonderful educator who's been teaching 19, 19 years. years. And I we have been together 17 of those 19 years. So I have seen the trajectory of your career. I have seen how you just move students, how students fall in love with you, how families fall in love with you. I've seen you win tons of awards for your teaching. So I'm not going to introduce you. Just tell us about you, your teaching philosophy. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's exciting to be on this side of the mic, and uh, this is a perfect time for us to have this discussion. So, um, first of all, I started teaching exceptional student education, kindergarten through fifth grade. For the first 10 years of my career, I started off in Homestead, Florida, then moved to Atlanta and continued with that. And then I've been teaching third through fourth grade general ed for the past nine years. And I've learned a lot in that time, and I've been able to to make some powerful shifts and changes. You know, when I first started teaching, I was really just imitating art. I was thinking about my great aunt and being in her in-home daycare and school. I was thinking about the women in my nursery. And so I was providing a really nurturing environment and it was great. I, I did well with that, to be honest, because the school systems and administration and teacher ed programs are expecting us and to be honest, celebrating when we just kind of wade in those seas of survival, especially for exceptional students in the exceptional education program. But um, when we moved to Atlanta, I learned about Dr. Hillard, and 
Dr. Hillard says in The Maroon Within Us, he says, we accept inaccurate perceptions without criticism. Mm. And I had to realize, you know what? That's what I'm doing. I'm happy with, with being okay with these kids. I'm happy with these small gains that I'm, that I'm getting with them because I hadn't been taught. I didn't know what else to do. Hold on, hold on. Say that again. Read, read Asa Hillard again. He said, we accept inaccurate perceptions without criticism. And I knew I wanted better for my students. Mm. I wanted them to feel education. I wanted them to feel success. And so Dr. Hillard gave me the science and that science allowed me to now implement genius awakening education, high rigor and achievement for all of my black students. And so that is what became the center of the academic goals in our classroom. Dr. Hillard's work gave me the combination of art and science of loving them first and of teaching them from the inside out. And it wasn't that surface idea that we get in, you know, our teacher ed programs where you say, I love all students. It was a true love story of these kids. It was loving their souls, their selves, their spirits. And his work showed me how to be incredibly intentional with rooting the education, with rooting our classroom center and our African traditions. And I just learned so much from him. I learned about the learning tax that's on our babies, that, you know, they have more social and emotional, more cognitive labor, more political responsibilities. All of this is falling on our babies and it's perpetuated by the school system. And so that shifted my philosophy. It shifted my practices. And I learned that loving them wasn't enough and that I had to expect more mm. of them, expect more of myself. And uh, my favorite Dr. Hiller quote it's beautiful and it resonates so much. It says, I have never encountered any children in any group who are not geniuses. Mm -hmm. There is no mystery on how to teach them. The first thing you do is to treat them like human beings. And the second thing you do is to love them. Mm. So these babies deserved being treated like human beings. They deserved a school and a classroom that was filled with high expectations, with rigor and with love. Dr. Hiller gave me that art and that science of teaching. Now, what's interesting about that is Chelsea's talking about, you know, her love for Dr. Hiller. And I have the same love before he made his transition in 2007. Um, he was on my dissertation committee. And so he has had such a huge impact in both of our lives as we think about and how we frame education, how we think about how black children are just worthy, how they're just beautiful of this. And it comes a lot from what we've learned from just a wonderful man and scholar. He was Dr. Asa Hillard. You so, put me on. I picked some of your books. Oh, okay. You know, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. You got credit. You got credit. I wasn't looking for credit. I wasn't looking for credit. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, you know, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. I appreciate that. Shout out though. So as we hear, it's, Middle of August almost, and we're moving towards opening schools up, and many schools around the country, many teachers are going to be put into this virtual learning, um, online learning space, virtual learning, learning in a crisis. I mean, many people have called it many different things. So let's just think about what this means and how we're going to have these conversations around education for the moment that we're in, really focused on this virtual space. So 
let's just talk about it. How do you how are you going to build joy and rigor with your students this year in this virtual space? So it goes back to what Dr. Hiller said is, you know, high rigor and high achievement. That's the goal. And trust. And in order to have joy, I have to have trust because our relationships and our experiences are built on the history and, you know, just keeping an honest black, brown and indigenous communities. We don't historically have a trusting relationship with these systems. Mm -hmm. And so I have to sit with that. I have to understand that promises have been broken, that children haven't always gotten the education that they're worthy of and that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so it's my job to be able to let them know that they can trust me. And I have to make sure that we are shifting in a space of joy and in a, in a space of, of understanding first, because I do want the virtual space to be an extension of the classroom that I had before. I have to make sure that I'm freedom dreaming and that I'm, I'm bringing in all of the resources that I have and making sure that school doesn't feel like a place that kids feel like they have to be, but that they want to be. Mm -hmm. They want to be there because they see themselves represented. They want to be there because they are excited to learn new things. They're excited to learn the history. They're excited to learn about their classmates. And the skills that come along with the standards are just kind of like, that just happens. Mm -hmm. And so in the radical literacy development model that's theorized by Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz, she talks about critical love and she defines it as the level of a commitment to caring for the community in which we work. And that space, this space has to be filled with love and that they deserve me to be in my most present self and the kids and the families and I were all going to be able to grow from that. So I think making sure that I'm incredibly intentional about all of the things that I'm doing, starting with joy, moving through rigor, making sure that we are we are actively being caring of ourselves and that we're growing together is how we can make that shift to a virtual space being the space that we want and that children deserve. Okay, so I get to see you do this. So Talk about when we went virtual in March and the struggles you had when we went virtual in March and how you had to shift and change and what you learned from that. Well, at first it was it was overwhelming because we were following the directions of business as usual. And when I felt that stress, when I felt that pressure and I saw that my students and their families were feeling that, I realized that. I'm, I'm trying to answer the wrong question here. I'm, I'm, I'm moving in the wrong direction. So when I switched over to making sure that we did really fun and engaging performance-based activities, when I made sure that we were all taking time to just socialize and to say the thing, to say how we were feeling with each other every day, when I made sure that we had those sparks of joy that just overshadowed everything else that we did, we had the growth. That's when we arrived mm -hmm. to a virtual space and the students felt it, the parents felt it, I felt it. And I was excited to go there every day. And, you know, I had kids who didn't want to leave. And I had kids who were you know, emailing me at seven o'clock in the morning, ready to get on with the <laughs> day. Did. And that's what you want. She you did. want kids saying, Hey, look, I'm done with this. What's next? What are we going to do today? And those smiles and that energy and the connection that they were able to have is what really made that virtual 
classroom, our virtual space, something that even though it was tough, it'll mm-hmm. be remembered forever for all of us. Because I love that at first, you know, and I watched you when we, when the whole country shifted, you were working 12 some sometimes I would get about two hours of sleep. You, I mean, she was nonstop trying to trying to create what you had created in the classroom, and you had to just reevaluate and realize, hold on, this is a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I cannot do what I was doing in the classroom, and you had to totally shift and call parents and talk to parents and ask them, hey. What's working? What's not working? And you had to build that relationship with the parents. So before we get into that parent question of trust and communication, can you just give the listeners some of the examples of the lessons that you did to create that joy and that rigor in virtual spaces? I saw you do it. I saw the kids excited to get on with you. But what are some of the lessons that you did? Absolutely. So the last lesson that we did was uh, an exact extension from the classroom because every year we end with this big project. And so we did this really powerful, you're giving your dream job talk. And so students, we met in small groups in order to really uh, fine tune the ideas of things that they wanted to freedom dream for themselves. And they had to come up with a resume. They had to look for the education that they needed to have for the specific careers. They had to explain a way that they were going to give back through their career paths. I set them up with professionals who were in those fields so that they could talk to them and ask them questions. And the final project was to give your dream job talk. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to be a football player and you wanted to play for the Falcons, then let's go. You are presenting a dream job talk to the Falcons. If you wanted to work for Google, then you were giving your dream job talk in front of the executives at Google. And students were able to really learn a lot about the experiences that they were going to need to have to go into these places and these spaces. They were able to use the skills that we've used over the course of the school year to um, apply to making sure that their presentations were strong. Technology was involved, aside from the obvious, because it was a virtual presentation, Um, but technology was involved. Parents were present and kids learned something. They, They had an experience that was a journey in education that kept them engaged. And it took about three weeks in order for them to to fully come to it. But that was where I had to say, you know what? This is what school should be. This is what learning should look like. It's not a one and done. It's not a skills-based lesson that, you know, they have to do. Dr. Goldie Muhammad talks about the need for students to be able to learn something from their assignment. It's not just about having the skill or attacking the standard. What did you learn from it? How did you grow? Where was the rigor involved? And so the students felt that all of those aspects helped to make that final project something that they can take a piece of from the fourth grade and shift it forward for the rest of their lives as a memory and an experience that will shape them. Because they had to have a resume. Yep. They had to have be able to give their job talk. Uh, their job talk had to have some type of technical component where they showed you. So I remember one young lady wanted to be a cook 
And so she had an actual lesson within her presentation. A pastry chef. She wants, I'm sorry, a pastry <laughs> chef. So yeah, like it was a really, you know, and like you said, it took three weeks, but at the end they had this beautiful product. So they had a resume, they had an example, they had a job talk, they had all of these skills. You had them in small groups, uh, being critical of each other, being critical of each other's work and going back and forth in small groups and meeting in big groups. And so ways in which you kept them engaged all day and the ways in which you were able for them to have small group conversations with each other, to be critical, look at each other's work, critique each other's work, give feedback, then come back to the big group and have larger conversations. I mean, these were the ways in which you used all of these different avenues to get to this final project, even in this virtual space. And so I love, you know, the way in which you engage students and have them excited about what's next, who I'm meeting with, who am I talking with? And on top of all that, you know, you reached out because we're in this virtual space, you reached out to a lot of professionals and had them talk to professionals about their profession. So they, when they had these job talks, they actually were, you know, had information from actual professionals in the field. And so, I mean, these are the type of lessons I think we have to be thinking about as we move into this virtual space. And these are the same lessons we should be doing with students in the classroom, in the classroom. Exactly. but they look differently in the virtual space, but we can still get it done. Exactly. That's why I said it was an extension of things that we do in the classroom. The kids were expecting it, which I loved. Uh, I did get to, to loop with these kids so they knew what the expectation was. And they were looking at me saying, all right, Miss Love, what are we going to do this year? Mm -hmm. And so I had to come with it. But I love the fact that the expectation has been established for them to reach for the top. And so they knew that this was going to be no different. They had that trust in me and that expectation in me, which pushed me as an educator. It pushed them as students and it allowed all of us to grow. Perfect. So let's move on to this idea of trust. So I think trust is going to be a major component as we move into online virtual space of schooling, because you need the parents in this space, right? I've, I've following Twitter and on Twitter, there's been so many conversations around, well, we need students to have on their uniforms. We need students not to be in their pajamas. We need students to do this. We need students to do that. And nobody's saying and having a conversation with the parents. This is a, we're in a space where if you're a first grader, who are all these emails going to? The children? No, they're going to the parents. And so you have to build a relationship of trust and love and care with the parents. We cannot be telling individuals what to do in their homes. We cannot be trying to police families in their own homes. We have to build a relationship. So tell us, how do you build this relationship with parents so they trust you? So they listen to you and so that they feel as though we're in this together, particularly in this virtual space where we need the teachers and the parents to be on the same page right now. So, <laughs> you know, families have the same right and same space to distrust us as teachers as the kids do, you know, so building that trust with them is incredibly important. And I want them to know that my expectations of myself haven't shifted simply because we're in a virtual environment. And so being able to have those relationships is something that you have to start at day one. I know that last year, lots of times I would call and I'd have a conversation with a parent 
with the intent of having a session or be virtually meeting with a student. And I'd end up talking to the parents for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And we just talk about, you know, COVID hair care. We talk about COVID dreaming, you know, what happens after the, the pandemic is over. We would talk about parenting and what we've experienced. And so that gave parents that place and space to know that I am a human. I am a teacher. I am a woman. I am a mother. I love their child and I want the best for their children. And so the idea of, you know, we can't police parents and families in their houses is exactly right. We have to have a a mutual level of respect for each other. And that has to start from day one. So showing parents that you're there for them as well as the kids can be done by sending out surveys, by uh, you know having phone calls. If you hear that the parents are having a hard time figuring out how to do something, reach out to them, talk to them. Don't just assume that the child is do, isn't doing something because their parents aren't making them. There are so many different situations and everyone's household is different. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be open and honest to that. And we have to do that by reaching out and getting out of our own feelings Mm -hmm. of assuming that we know everything and everybody's space and what everybody is expecting and not expecting and open up the conversation. And so you have to build that credibility with the students and with their parents in order to gain that trust so that if you see something that's going on, you feel comfortable enough to call and say, hey, look, you know, how are you doing? Let's start with that. Don't lead with, well, I noticed that. No. Hey, how are you doing? First, get that that foundational level of respect Mm -hmm. open and flowing. And that should be coming from the schools. Because like you said, the kids aren't getting emails. The parents are getting Mm -hmm. those emails. So if you start every email with your child wasn't, your child didn't, we're expecting that. How do you Mm -hmm. think someone is going to want to ride with you for the next nine Mm -hmm. weeks potentially a full year right. with this. I got to open up the computer and see your face right. <laughs> with this foolishness every single morning. I think, you know, so it's so much about that. And it's also about this idea that we are going to get an intimate look into our students' lives and their homes and their families and their rooms. And we have to make sure we're not being judgmental. We have to make sure that we're not policing them. We have to make sure that this is a level of trust and intimacy that we have to be feel privileged to be able to enter. And if there's not a level of trust there, then, yeah, the, the student might turn their camera off and you can't see them because they might not be secure about what's in the background of their house. They might not be secure about what's going on and they don't trust you. And so before you say, why is your camera off? You need to do some investigating that's in loving and a caring fashion to understand that maybe this is why that camera is off. Or maybe this is why they're not here today. Like we have to understand that this is a pandemic first and foremost. And second, everybody's lives are different and we're going to get an intimate look into people's lives. I think we have to have a very caring and loving approach to make sure that we're not policing and putting our own norms of how school should look in somebody else's house. Right. And again, the first thing, hey, how are you? Right. Start. Let's leave with that. Okay. How are you? And Like you said, there might be other reasons that a child doesn't have their camera on. And sometimes it's just a lot. Right. Like, I don't want to see your face. Right. It it, it is a lot. So 
I think that for me, one of the, the ways that I was able to be successful with the virtual learning is that we had established that environment. We established that expectation and the kids wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. So don't always assume that because a child isn't there, then it's on them. Maybe it's on you as a teacher. Mm -hmm. Maybe the reason the child's not engaged is because you are not engaging mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the reason the child doesn't feel comfortable having their camera on because you said, oh my goodness, is that how your room looks? Right. So you need to be, you need to be able to be reflective and to look at yourself and to look at what you're bringing to the table before you automatically assume that it's somebody else's problem or it's that family or it's that parent. And so again, being open, being honest and establishing an environment of trust Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is most important because trust is actually a learning style. Mm. And so if a child can't trust you, then they're not going to want to learn from you. Mm. Y'all can't see her right now. She got her little finger pointed up at me <laughs> like I like I did something to her. You can you can take your finger and come on down. So, 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 so listen, last question because we, we want to make sure that these podcasts are rich with information right to the point. So even in a pandemic, we have to make sure that we are centering and establishing and pushing for the racial identity of black and brown children. Even in a pandemic, even in a virtual learning, this is still important. And we don't want to see it pushed to the side because, well, I'm, you know, I'm in, it's a pandemic. I'm doing online learning. No, yes, you can still nurture and strengthen the racial identities of black and brown children. So just tell us, you know, why that's important, number one. And number two, how do you do it? Well, it's important because how can you want someone to learn if they don't see themselves in what you're learning? Okay. So if, if I can't see who I am from the whole story, not just the deficits, if I can't see me, then how and why is this applicable to me? So in our classroom, the principles of Umoja, Kujichagalia, Ujima, Ujama, Nia, Kuumba, and Imani are guiding words in our class. Our classroom, we are the Ujima Bees, and Ujima is collective work and responsibility. So I am centering the wellness of my Black, Brown, Indigenous kids in our classroom through the establishment of that culture, through the establishment of the celebration of the joy, of the resistance, of the resilience of us as a collective. So that's point blank period, right? Period. And our space in the classroom, our space in a virtual environment does not shy away from those critical conversations. And we're not removing race. We're not removing the issues of racial inequalities from the conversation, because how can we expect to move forward if we're not looking at it? And like Dr. Kelly Morgan Gunn says, saying the thing, naming the thing. All right. So we focus on the full range of emotions and the humanity of our people and the humanity of our students and the humanity of us learning from each other. Again, it's a collective effort. Nobody is learning in isolation. And so, you know, it's not a classroom where you're expected to just show up as your half self or to participate partially. We are there. We're not there 100% maybe every day, but we're coming with our best selves when we can. And we're learning from that. And so, our identity is not exclusive of our experiences. So if we don't center our identity in our joy and honestly doing that and doing it respectfully, which means looking at our whole story of who we are, then how can we grow? 
How can you want to be there? How can you see this work as important and as vital to who you are going to become when you leave my doors? So we are focusing on the historical perspective, language, literacy, rigor, action. Dr. Goldie Muhammad in her amazing work of cultivating genius talks about this. And this is how we center identity. And so, again, making sure that our story is not centered in deficits, but they have to learn that our school is a safe space for them to be present, for them to have a voice, for them to be heard, for them to be seen, and for them to gain the necessary tools that they need in order to be successful once they walk away from my classroom. And that's my responsibility. It's my responsibility as a woman. It's my responsibility as a Black mother, as a Black educator, and as one who loves Black and Brown Indigenous kids. It is my job. This is my responsibility. So I think um, let's just end one last time with the quote by Dr. Hillard. I have never encountered any children in any group who are not geniuses. There's no mystery on how to teach them. The first thing you do is treat them like human beings. And the second thing you do is to love them. Thank you so much for listening to Teaching to Thrive. Thank you, Dr. Love, for having me. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know. <laughs> we appreciate y'all. We want you to have a great and wonderful school year. We know it's going to be challenging. Right now, the world is challenging. Every day is challenging. This is hard. This is hard work. Trying to live in a pandemic and now to try to shift and live and teach in a pandemic. So we wish you all nothing but love, sending you all nothing but wonderful, beautiful energy. Celebrate yourselves. Yes, celebrate yourself. Take love, all the small wins, the big wins and the small wins, and see the beauty of your kids on that screen. Make them feel love. Make them feel encouraged. And build trust. Before we talk about what gaps they have, before we talk about where they left off last year, build trust. We appreciate y'all. We love y'all. Teaching to Thrive is out. <laughs> Teaching to Thrive was produced by Dr. Bettina Love, Chelsea Cully Love, and Dr. Kelly Morgan Gunn. The musical arrangement was provided by Dr. Gail Surden. We'd also like to thank our kids for being quiet.